Well, folks, Jadevsha Arish, it's Jerry Adams here, just cogitating over the week's events, and I'm particularly taken by the machinations of the DUP over the Article 16 carry-on. And uh, Philip McGuigan, the local MLA, in my opinion, was absolutely right when he criticised and raised questions about the DUP's intervention around alleged threats to workers at Lauren Harbour. Now, obviously, threats of any kind are wrong and are to be condemned and workers have to be allowed to get on with their work without fear or threat of any kind. But the behaviour of the DUP reeks of short-term opportunism. It's also really isn't very smart. News reports uh, now state that the claims of threats originated within the DUP, that no trade union representative raised any concerns, and that the PSNI have no evidence of threats. So what's it all about? Well, for me, it's very simple. Brexit is a child of the DUP. The DUP were hell-bound for Brexit. They disregarded all advice and suggestions from all quarters about the likely consequences. And now they complain. Very much like someone jumping into a lake and then complaining about being wet. Now, I wouldn't mind the DUP jumping into a lake on their own. But they're trying to drag the rest of us, in as well. And they're stirring up, as they've done in the past, people's fears. And, you know, the reality is, the history of it is that the targets of their outrage have suffered in the past. But so too have the lumpen proletariat and the deprived and disadvantaged loyalist and unionist working class. So let's be clear Who has the responsibility for the current Brexit difficulties? The DUP. So let's keep reminding them and the Protestant Unionist and Loyalist people of this indisputable fact. It's hard to say that. Indisputable. But that's the reality. It's the DUP. It's their child. Brexit is theirs. They need to own it. I'm also not entirely surprised at the intervention by the PSNI into the commemoration by the families of those who had lost loved ones in the mass murder attack by the UDA on Graham's Bookies in February 1992. And five people were killed then and seven were injured. And the media has been filled with the imagery of Mark Sykes being arrested, of the heavy-handedness and the thuggishness of the PSNI officers. What was essentially uh, a gathering of, of family members properly masked up against COVID and in keeping with uh, the COVID restrictions. Now, 
the very footage shows really not just incompetence, but but also just a a total failure to relate uh, to the people who were gathered there. And, you know, the families have been deeply distressed. And Mark Sykes, who was shot seven times in the original attack, him being manhandled, handcuffed, uh, arrested, and... The widespread anger that that has caused is doing huge damage to the PSNI's reputation among nationalists and republicans. You see, and, and nationalists and republicans want to be policed. But they want to be policed by public servants who work for them and who have uh, that key element of respecting citizens. In other words, this is community policing, not policing the community. And, you know, anybody who's familiar with the attack on the Ormer Road way back will know that the police ambush report into the original mass killings has been delayed And why was that? Well, in part it was because information relating to the attack was discovered in PSNI computers and had never been disclosed to the police ombudsman's investigating team. So this revelation has added to the doubts about the PSNI's role in the investigation itself. Now, Murphy, the human rights Solicitor, three years ago, and he represents the families, said they were taking legal action against the PSNI and the British Ministry of Defence. And the families said that both these parties were complicit in the atrocity and specifically cite that both agencies facilitated the importation of the weapons that were used by means of supervising an arms importation from South Africa. Now, I believe that. It's there, it's proof. Brian Nelson, one of the British agents, has given a reputable proof about all of that, and it's never been contested. And the families also believe that state agencies were involved in planning the attack with the UDA death squad, which was responsible. So it's also... You know, important to remember that that this collusion between British state forces, which the British government have actually ag- acknowledged, the three years prior to the weapons being shipped in from South Africa, Unionist death squads killed thirty four people, and then in the years after the shipment, they killed two hundred and twenty four and wounded countless others. So that's the background to last week's event. And as I said, it's done huge damage to the still developing relationship between nationalist and Republican people of the North and the PSNI. It's you know standards right out of the old RUC 
rule book, and it's not acceptable. So I'm afraid that we haven't got the progress that we deserve, that we require from those responsible for policing in this part of the island. It is still a battle a day and it is still very much work in progress. And finally, you'll know that I've been concerned and been a supporter of the efforts by the relatives of the signatories of the 1916 proclamation to have the Moore Street battlefield site developed as a historical quarter. Now, Moore Street is where the IRA and other Republican forces moved out of the GPO when the GPO was put ablaze and they moved from there across Henry Street and then tunneled their way into Moore Street and then through all of the gable walls until the the, the leaders uh, gathered uh, for what was to be the last meeting of the provisional government. So like anywhere else in the world, such a, a place would be properly uh, commemorated, would be a vocal point. We, we can think of many, many states throughout the world that have their uh, famous places that are both uh, hugely in honour of the men and women that they commemorate, but also are a huge educational, informational, economic regenerated hub for the area that they're based in, and they educate everyone who visits them. So, here we have a derelict site, uh, a run-down street, and for over a decade, the success of developers with the support or the acquiescence of the government, they have sought to demolish most of the historical buildings to make way for a shopping mall. The last thing the capital city and the main street of the capital city needs is a shopping mall. So the developers due to submit yet another planning application. And from what we know of it, the plan will not meet the requirements of the Dublin City Development Plan, the report of the Lord Mayor's Forum on Moor Street, or the report of the Minister's Moor Street Advisory Group, Securing History. But the relatives of the 1916 signatories of the proclamation have announced that they have an alternative plan, and I dealt with this uh, a week or two ago. And it, it's, I've, I've had some sight of this. It is really top-notch. And it deserves our fullest support. I picked up a copy of a book, which I would commend to you all, especially as we approach Easter. It's called Last Words. It's a, a remarkable book. It's by Piers F. McLaughlin. And it's the last words of the 1916 leaders as they awaited execution. And it records the events of the Easter 
rising period in their own words and provides an account of relatives and the priests who visited them and so on. And it also deals with Moore Street and some of this. And Podrick Pierce, in the 1st of May 1916, he wrote to his uh, mother and he described the events around the the leaving the GPO after the burning. He wrote, Dear Mother, You will, I know, have been longing to hear from me. I do not know how much you have heard since the last note I sent you from the GPO. On Friday evening, the post office was set on fire and we had to abandon it. We doused into Moore Street and remained in the houses in Moore Street until the Saturday evening. We then found that we were surrounded by troops and that we had practically no food. We decided in order to prevent further slaughter of the civilian population and in the hope of saving the lives of our followers to ask the general commanding the British forces to discuss terms. He replied that he would receive me only if I surrendered unconditionally and that I did. All this in in accordance with the decision of our provisional government who were with us in Moore Street. And Dr James Ryan, who was a medical officer attached to the GPO garrison, recalls in his contribution how Tom Clark, who had spent more than 15 years in prisons in England, many in solitary confinement, told him of his experience. He said, Clark was with them as they tunneled their way through the walls of the houses in Moore Street and as they carried the wounded Connolly in his sheet. He was with them when some hours later, temporary headquarters were set up in number 16 Moore Street, and he was, of course, one of the members of the provisional government present at headquarters, who at Connolly's bedside decided sometime before noon on Saturday the 29th of April to negotiate terms and a couple of hours afterwards to surrender unconditionally. Eamon Dore, Another member of the garrison recalled how a British Army officer, Captain Percival Leah Wilson, used a rifle butt to stop one of the prisoners relieving himself. Dorr said, The night at the Rotunda, that's the Rotunda Hospital there in Parnell Street, and the prisoners were uh, marshalled in the garden. So this man, uh, Dorr, says that the night at the Rotunda was a bit of a nightmare. About five on the morning of the Sunday, after the officer had struck Henderson, he took Tom Clark, Sean McDermott and Ned Daly, and they were all executed later, into the street near the Rotunda picture house, now the ambassador, and stripped them down to their boots to search them. Tom Clark had been wounded in the elbow joint, and his arm was in a sling, so he could not get his coat off quickly enough. The officer pulled the arm straight, opening the wound and turning off his coat. Percival Leo Wilson, who abused the frail Tom Clark at the Rotunda, later became an RIC district inspector in Gorey, County Wexford. On June 15th, 1920, he was shot dead by two IRA volunteers. It is claimed that Michael Collins, who witnessed Leah Wilson's treatment of Tom Clark, 
ordered the attack. So there are only little tales of this historic quarter. Tom Clark's shop is there also in Parnell Street, now covered mostly by plastic. Uh, the rotunda itself where the volunteers were founded. The laneways of Moor Street, the battlefield site, and the spot where uh, Pierce uh, surrendered. The only thing that uh, is commemorated is in a, a plaque where the O'Rahilly died in a, a doorway. So, there is the potential. The relatives have a plan. It's a good plan. It will economically regenerate that deprived part of the north inner city. It will be a fitting tribute to the men and women of 1916. It will be an educational and a, a cultural uh, hub. So, if you have the opportunity to have your voice on this, come out in support of the relatives' plan. Shine, Akarja, finally, 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 have a really good St. Valentine's Day. Bonak La Fela, Valentine, Wee Waisha, Deebsha, Gulyar. Slan August Bonak